0: would he just say no i've got your bible and you've got mine so i'm pretty sure they say the same things <laughs> okay <laughs> that could be the tricky part um, well good morning again welcome today we're continuing in our kind of newly launched series on paul's letter to the romans In our uh, initial message last week, we looked at some of the background to this letter. And at the end of that study, uh, our working hypothesis was that Paul wrote this letter in the main as a kind of missionary letter of introduction in hopes of winning the confidence and the support of the church in Rome. And the motivation behind this would seem to have been Paul's desire to continue to push the gospel work further and further westward. In order that uh, to do that, and 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 in order to do that, he really needed to move his base of operations from Antioch in the east to Rome further west, so that with the support of the Roman Church, he might be able to keep taking the gospel further and further away, even as far as Spain. That, in a nutshell, is what we looked at last week, and so with that in mind, we turn this morning to an examination of the first seven verses of chapter 1. These verses contain 132 words, and yet, surprisingly, are one sentence in the Greek, which the ESV translation tries to preserve with lots of commas. So it's a long introduction, indeed, longer than any of Paul's other beginnings in his other letters. That being said, and despite the fact that it is an introduction, I hope we'll see this morning how there's still a great deal to be found here. It's not a mere formality that we can just kind of skip through to get to the really important parts of the letter. This all by itself is a very important part of this letter. And it sets a tone right from the outset that tells us what we can expect pretty much all the way through this series. Now in this introduction, Paul is doing two basic things. Firstly, he's introducing himself, and then secondly, he's introducing his gospel, that is, his message. And that's really the main things we'll be focusing on this morning. Before we continue with any of that, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please guide us now in this and through this reading of your word. Take us to good places, show us Good and helpful things, and by helpful I mean the great variety of ways that you do that, which are not always pleasant, but which are always right. So show us good and helpful things as you define those terms. And so bring about uh, good effects and consequences within us and through us. Mostly, Father, show us yourself. Show us your missionary heart. And in that showing, draw our sedentary hearts forward. Uh, in your kindness, please keep leading us to repentance. Have your way with us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1.1 Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The first thing Paul does here is uh, introduce himself. Now, I don't know if you have noticed this before, but Paul's practice and the general practice back then was the opposite of what you and I typically do at the beginning of a letter. Uh, have you noticed that before? I mean, we when you and I write a letter or send an email or a text or whatever, we often will start by addressing the person we're writing to. <coughs> their name comes first and uh, then we have the body of the letter, and then the last thing we do is kind of attach our name to it. Uh, Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't start with, dear Romans, dear Corinthians, dear Timothy, dear anybody. He starts with himself uh, and uh, the guy sending the letter. And he then indicates the intended recipients, and after all that, he develops the body of the letter. It's a different order, but he always does that. And uh, I don't think that approach was unique to Paul. It was uh, sort of common in letter writing back then. He didn't invent it, but I think it nevertheless served him well, especially in this letter, where he was working hard to make a good, strong, convincing impression upon the Roman church. And all of that so that he might enlist them as partners with him in the gospel. And so he introduces himself first, and in doing so he says three things, immediately very quickly, but which when you don't just go rushing right past them, communicate some important things about Paul. Firstly, Paul says that he is a servant. He's a a loss of Christ. And that in itself, as uh, one writer points out, is pretty revealing when you think about it. Paul is trying to introduce himself and his mission, trying to get the Romans on board. And you might think that in that kind of situation, uh, he would open up a little stronger than he has. You might think that he would uh, talk a little bit more about the things that he's done. Maybe even possibly toot his horn a little bit just to say, look, I'm, I'm trying to work hard here for the gospel. Perhaps talking about some of the things he mentions in Philippians 3, for example, about his being from the tribe of Benjamin or Hebrew of Hebrews or a zealous, scrupulous pursuer of right living. Stuff like that. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he starts out in the opposite direction. He calls himself a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. But the point there being not the abjectness of his position or his condition, but simply the completeness, the totality of, of his devotion as uh, one commentator puts it paul is saying that uh, he's sold out he's saying that he's completely owned by jesus that's one thing he says he also says he's called to be an apostle and by and by means of that phrase he's communicating that he who he is now what he's doing is not a self-chosen thing it's not a function of a 5 year or a 20 year or a 40 year life plan uh, he hasn't called himself to be an apostle. Somebody else has called him. And the implication that appears in the next phrase is that he's been called by the same one that set him apart for the gospel. That is, for the good news. And that would be, of course, God himself. It is God's good news that Paul is announcing and bringing to the world. And Paul is simply God's megaphone. He's God's microphone. He's the sent messenger Uh, which is all that apostle means, is set apart for that particular task. And so in just a few words, Paul communicates who he is. He shows the totality of his commitment, and in particular shows that uh, his personal identity is completely wrapped up in and defined by and a product of God's gospel mission, by which he's been saved and into which he has been drafted. In the paper this week, there was an article about an LSU basketball player to whom our new coach, uh, Johnny Jones, has given permission to explore the possibility of his going to play another school. And in Jones' comments about it, which I thought were fair, his closing remark was that if this player, uh, after looking around, decided that LSU was the place to stay and to play basketball, then that's fine. But he qualified that by saying, essentially, if he stays... He's got to be all in. Uh, He's got to be all about LSU. All about the program. All about the plan. All about the mission. That's what Paul is communicating here. He's saying, he's essentially saying, you want to know who I am? You want to know about me? Let me tell you. I'm the guy that is all about what God is doing here through the gospel. That's the thing flowing through my veins it's what gets me out of bed in the morning, it's what keeps me awake at night. It's the thing I'm going to be about until I cease to draw breath. I am all in. That's what Paul is communicating here. And to be sure, Paul didn't uh, Pauls being all in didn't mean he always had all the answers. Uh, it didn't mean that he never struggled to know what being all in was supposed to look like in every situation or circumstance. His letters reveal the various ways he wrestled with the implications of that for his entire life. At times, he openly confessed he didn't know what he should do in a given situation, whether he should go or remain, which way he should turn, how he should respond in a certain circumstance. And even so, all of his wrestlings, right indeed the very reason that they were wrestlings, the very reason they felt like a struggle was precisely because he was all in. That part was never in doubt. That part had been decided. It had been settled. It was just the outworking of it that would challenge him for the entirety of his ministry. I uh, recently had the opportunity to attend a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And I always say that word wrong. And Jason and Amy are here this morning to teach me. So, but uh, they, I'm trying. I still fail. But I'm trying to get it right. But I was in a large city starting by the, with the letter L in Kentucky. And at this conference, there were a number of very fine sermons delivered, including one by John Piper at the close of the conference. And one of the things uh, I appreciate about John Piper is, uh, one of the many things, is his passion. Um, if you've ever heard him preach, or better yet, if you've seen him preach, uh, then you know he's all in, right? Uh, when he, I've never seen or heard him speak when he just you know, wasn't going for it. That's who he is. Which is why it was helpful in an odd sort of way to hear him talk at this conference about the struggling side of all that. In fact, the opening line of his talk was, I cannot believe that after 60 years I am still a Christian. And then he went on to talk about lots of things. One of those being the way that repeatedly he would find himself in his study over the years, staring down the barrel of another Sunday, on his knees, distraught over the fact that he had no idea what he was supposed to say to his people. Distraught and weeping. He talked about many, many times he has cried out to God and just said, Lord, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? I don't know how to lead these people. I do not know where we're supposed to go from here. And I've told some of you this story already, I know. But it's, uh, like I said, it did me a world of good to hear that fall from John Piper's lips. Because he's a guy that I would say is very much all about the mission. And he steadily remained all about it for years. And yet he openly admits to lots of struggle with putting shoe leather to that commitment. He openly talks about the uncertainties involved in pursuing that thing and working that thing out. And he is, I think, in that way, a lot like Paul, who was all about the mission. So that's the first thing, Paul's self introduction. The second thing I want you to see is not only Paul's introduction of himself, but also the introduction of his message. And it's just an opening thing. He's going to, you know, in the next 11 chapters, he's going to blow this thing up, this full expansion of, of what his message is. Very full. And so I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail here, but I do want to point out some of the main features of what he says here, some of the characteristics, the nature of the message. And again, what's he trying to do? He's trying to convince, I think he's trying to convince the Roman church, I'm a good guy to support. I, I, I really want your support. I need your support. Uh, you know, I know you don't know me. I'm Paul. I'm a, I'm, you know, I've never been there. But these are the things I believe, and this is what I want, you know, by God's grace and mercy I want to see done, bringing the gospel west. And so I think he's trying to say uh, it's, it's a safe, it's the right message, it's a good message, it's a safe one. Uh, please get behind me. I really think that's what he's trying to do. So Romans 1, 1 to 7. Let me just read that again. Verse 1 again and keep going, if I can ever find it. There we go. to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, there are six things that I want to quickly draw your attention to with regard to this message, the character and nature of this message, as Paul introduced it in the verses just read. (coughs) Firstly, he says it's of God. It's the gospel of God. The message that he's uh, going about proclaiming is not his message. Ultimately, although he believes it deeply, neither is it someone else's message. Paul's message is of God. It's God's good news. And the fact that it's God's message means all kinds of things. It means that Paul has no right to change it. It means he's not the originator. He's not the co-author. He's not the editor. He's not a collaborator. He's none of those things. It's not his to change. It's not his to try and improve. He has one job, and that is to pass on this message as he received it. To get it right. To make sure that he is saying what the sender of the message was intending to not leave anything out and to pass it on. It's a gospel of God. Now, I mean, a lot more could be said on just that one aspect, but, and Lord willing, we'll unearth more of that in the coming weeks and months. But for now, let it suffice to say that Paul's message ultimately isn't his message, right? It's God's, and that fact alone carries a boatload of responsibility, Secondly, Paul says that his message is one that was anticipated by the prophets. And by this, Paul is certainly saying more than just the fact that the gospel is the fulfillment of a number of prophetic predictions, although it certainly is that. He's saying at least that, but I think he's saying a lot more. With this language, I take it that he primarily means that while the gospel is good news, it isn't new news. You've no doubt heard the saying, or maybe you've heard the saying, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed, which is maybe not the most precise language in the world, but it's a useful rhyme and refers to the way that the teachings of the New Testament can be found within the Old Testament and vice versa. To be sure, sometimes the relationship between the Old Testament teaching and the New Testament uh, teaching of the same thing is like the relationship between an object and its shadow. Sometimes the New Testament truth is a fuller, more clear and obvious form of something that's in more seed-like form in the Old Testament. But it's all there. Said another way, the New Testament is simply the final outworking of a plan and a message that God has intended from day one, and from which He has never departed, He has never deviated a single inch. And again, much more could be said, but that is at least part of what Paul means when he says that his message was anticipated by the prophets. A third thing he said about Paul's uh, third thing to be said about Paul's message is that it's one that is attested in the Scriptures, which is to say it's a matter of record. And this comment goes hand-in-hand hand with the previous one, since the very prophets through whom God spoke to His covenant people are also the ones through whom He reduced these things to writing and preserved them in the form of the Scriptures. Now, again, we'll talk about this more in another point, but it should probably be said here that one of the possible motivations for Paul's inclusion of that idea in this opening summary Of his message, uh, as one commentator has pointed out, is the likelihood that Paul uh, had gained a certain reputation for himself, thanks to the efforts of the false teachers, which we've seen in the past. And that reputation, most likely, was that he was anti-Old Testament with some people, that he was anti-Jewish even, and all because he refused to obscure the message of God's grace with any hint of works righteousness. And so Paul Uh, was misunderstood by many people, falsely accused. And one of those accusations seems to have been that he was anti-Old Testament, uh, by some at least. And so I think part of that colors his description here. A fourth thing to be said about Paul's message is that it was one that was centered on the person of Jesus Christ. That was a message concerning God's Son, to use the language of the passage. And there are two clauses that follow this uh, concerning the Son, which give us a clue what he, uh, Paul had in mind. One of those uh, phrases or clauses is, "...who was descended from David according to the flesh." And the other is, "...he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." And without getting bogged down into a great discussion on those phrases, uh, which would be easy to do, what I think Paul is doing is this. With these phrases... He's showing that his message uh, is concerning his son. That it's about Jesus Christ and specifically, it's about Jesus as uh, the one who was both human and divine. It's about Jesus who was a real life historical descendant of David. But it was also the very son of God. A fact that was proven and demonstrated powerfully through his resurrection. Which declared and announced uh, like a neon sign that Jesus was a descendant of David, but so much more than that. Now, don't get too hung up on the word in there, declared. Paul, by using that word, declared the Son of God, Paul isn't saying that Jesus wasn't the Son of God before his resurrection. Paul wasn't saying that it wasn't until after the resurrection that Jesus got the title Son of God. He was... And he always has been and always will be the Son of God. Nobody can it better than Paul. But what Paul is saying is that it was the resurrection that trumpeted his identity in power. And that phrase is key there, in power. Uh, it trumpeted that in power in a way that nothing else had done before. The fifth thing to see about Paul's message is that it was one that uh, left a mark, so to speak, in his life. And was continuing to do so. At least three things are seen in, in uh, what Paul says here. He says... He talks about grace. There was the evidence, the mark of grace in Paul's life, by which I take Paul to mean the experience of God's grace. That is, the fact and the experience of forgiveness, of being of both being forgiven and knowing that you are forgiven. Uh, a second evidence was the simple fact of his being an apostle, right? I mean, Jesus literally struck him down on the road to Damascus and drafted him irresistibly into the service of the gospel. And the third piece. ...of evidence is found in the phrase, obedience of faith. Paul said he received grace and apostleship, purpose clause, to bring about the obedience of faith. Right? And this refers, I think, to at least two things. Uh, For one thing, it's referring to the obedience that is faith. Right? In other words, when a person sees their sin, and they see their need for God's mercy... And then they trust in what God has done to make him or her right with God. When that sort of thing happens, the response of faith is, in effect, the first act of obedience. It's not an obedience by which you're saved, but it's an obedience through which you're saved. As Ephesians 2 puts it, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? Faith is the right and expected response to God's unmerited favor and kindness, as can only be seen when the Holy Spirit works to give us eyes and ears to hear and see and embrace the truth. The other thing that this refers to is simply the fact that belief and real faith has consequences. Uh, You know, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith uh, is accompanied by a life that evidences the reality of which you now profess. The gospel doesn't just affect the way that we think, it affects the way we live. Uh, the way that you are. Jesus didn't die just so that you could clarify your thinking on a number of issues. He died to make you holy and to set you apart. Let me say that in a better way. He died that God might be glorified through the life of Christ made manifest within you. The sixth thing to see about Paul's message is its goal or purpose. Paul said he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of of his name among all the nations. In short, the goal of his gospel message ultimately is the glory of God among the nations. There are a lot of nations out there. And and the goal is is God's glory in every single one of them. So Paul introduces his message and he tells us these six different things. It's of God, it was announced by the prophets, and uh, it's not new news. It's attested in the Scriptures. It's not an anti-Old Testament thing, but actually flows right out of it. It's centered on Jesus Christ, both human and divine, both descendant of David and the one through whom the new age of the Spirit has been ushered in through the resurrection. It's a life-changing message that will not and cannot leave you alone. And finally, it's a message whose goal is nothing less than God being glorified and praised on every square inch of this planet on the lips of every person who has ever lived or ever will live. And one last thing I want to do with you here this morning in this opening section is to see that Paul, after introducing himself, after introducing his message, he finishes his introduction by briefly addressing his recipients, and I think in so doing encourages them and challenges them by saying, uh, by saying, through some, really short, saying some things that are really short, but I think extremely impactful. Um, he talks about his calling, but now he wants to talk about their calling, specifically verses uh, 5 to 7 there. where He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the beans of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul addresses the Romans as the recipients of this mission into which he's been called and uses three phrases to describe the situation and standing of the Roman Christians with respect to God. He says they're called to belong to Jesus, he says they are loved by God, and he says that they are called to be saints. Let's think about that second phrase first. Paul says that these Roman believers are loved by God, and uh, it's a wonderful description. What a, it's a telling description. I mean, what an identity. Who, who are you? And if an, an, an answer to the question, who are you, your answer is, I'm loved. That's who I am. I'm loved by God. If you have known the privilege of being loved and being loved well, and I hope everybody in this room can say that and, and know that, or at least have known that at some point, then you'll know what that kind of thing does and can do to and for a person. You'll know the affirmation, the worth, the security, the peace, comfort, the assurance in the knowledge that you are deeply, deeply loved. And that, you know, that there's someone for whom you are never invisible. Uh, there's someone who has your back. There's someone uh, to whom you matter a great deal. And that is God's stance toward his people. You are loved by God. Um, but more than that, it's. Uh, and it's his stance toward the Roman Christians, but it's, it's his stance toward his people in every age, including his people in this room. And it's out of that truth of God's prior and abiding and unshakable love for his people, which Paul, and he's going to go uh, really crazy about that in chapter 8 of Romans, but uh, that truth, God's prior unshakable love, uh, is woven into the very fabric of his calling upon his people. And it's seen, I think, in these other two phrases that are found here. Um... It's what's behind this fascinating expression, called to belong to Jesus Christ. I don't usually use that kind of language, talking about being called to belong to something. Uh, it's a fascinating phrase. Uh, and it, what a beautiful way to think about and talk about the calling that God has for His people. I mean, what is God's primary call to His children? It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a call to belong to Him. It's a call to be possessed by Him, to be cared for, to be embraced, to be family, to sort of get into this uh, eternal hug that you never get out of. It's not a call to belong to ourselves or another person or a mere institution. It's not a call to become the master of your own fate, the captain of your ship, or to thine own self be true. It's a call away from all that. It's a call to abandon A futile attempt to construct a universe or to write a narrative for your life that always has you at the center in the starring role and everybody else and everyone else, everything else as bit players. It's a call to remember that there is a creator, that it isn't you, and that you belong, body and soul, heart and mind, completely unreservedly to Him. It's a call to ground who we are, the deepest roots of our identity in Him. That's your calling. That's my calling. Equally, the fact that God's people are deeply loved by Him is what is behind, I think, this other phrase too, called to be saints. Uh, Regarding this, uh, one commentator has made the following very uh, helpful observation. We sometimes speak of an individual man or woman as a saint or refer to Saint Peter or Saint Mary or the like. Uh, This is not a New Testament usage, says this writer, of that word. The word saint is never used of an individual believer. It's always plural when used of believers. And the plural points to believers as a group, as a community set apart for God. And again, the term does not communicate the idea of the outstanding ethical achievement which we usually understand by saintliness. While the importance of right living is insisted on and may even be implied by that term, the main thrust is not there. It's rather in the notion... Of belonging to God, uh, of being set apart for Him. So, what's Paul saying? Well, here's what I think he's saying, and communicating to these Roman believers by means of these phrases. Paul wants the Roman believers to know and remember that they are always loved, deeply loved by God. Paul wants them to know that this God who has loved them has at least these sort of two callings on their life. The one calling is a call to belong to Christ Jesus. That's about identity. The other call is a call to be saints, to be set apart for God. And that's a calling that has to do with purpose, and being used by God. And so, it's, uh, it's, it's, as with anything else, When you sometimes you're, you set something apart. Uh, sometimes I go searching for a particular tool in the house or something like that, and I, I go through my tool kit and I can't find it and I finally do and I take it out and I set it apart I don't set it apart so that I could just kind of walk around it and admire it, I set it apart for a reason there's a use I have in mind for that thing and, and it's going to be employed in some task. In the same kind of way we're set apart, a set apart people for God to be employed in his kingdom purposes so we're set apart in terms of belonging, we're set apart in terms of purpose and function as well and uh, that's The sort of thing uh, that comes to mind for me when I think about what Paul is saying here. Um, God's people, the Roman Christians, are to be a people that are not only set apart in terms of belonging to God, but for God and His purposes. Greatly loved and intentionally employed by God for His glory. Um, Years ago now, Stephen Covey came out with his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the seven habits was... uh, about beginning with the end in mind. I think that was the second habit, I think. Uh, And and having this kind of blueprint for your life, a sense of mission uh, that was pulling you through the present. And, uh, you know, I think, okay, well, it's a good idea. I think, actually, it's a biblical idea, whether Covey or Covey, however you say it, intended it that way or not. But here was Covey's problem. He assumed his readers didn't have a mission already. And maybe that's true for some of his readers, but if you're a Christian, it's not true. (coughs) Paul says it's not true. He says it explicitly right here. The Christian never has to invent a mission statement. Not out of the blue. You don't have to make one out of thin air. The canvas is not blank for us, the screen is not white with nothing written on it. Why? Because we are deeply loved. We are called to belong to Jesus. We're called to be saints, to be this set apart community useful to God. Now, do we need to specify that? Absolutely. Do we need to customize that to fit the particular uh, set and collection of things that is us, it's a collection of gifts and experiences that God used to make us? Absolutely. But we never, as God's people, we never start uh, with a blank page. And however that looks, uh, it's, it's to be framed and shaped by these callings that God has upon us already. Wherever we go, whatever we do, however we think about our lives, however we plan them and live them out, we always have to start here. This much we know is true, that we are deeply loved, belong to Christ Jesus, called to that, and called to be his set-apart instruments for his glory. That truth has to be the umbrella Umbrella under which we work out everything. Who we are, what we're, what, where we're going, and what we're doing has to be worked out underneath the umbrella of those truths. That's our starting point. And So let that truth shape you. Let it shape who you are. Let it shape how you see yourself, how you plan, what you choose, where you go, and why you go there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please uh, help us now to um, take to heart the truths that are here, these things that Paul uh, encouraged the Roman Christians with, which are also true for us. We pray, Father, that they would have the same sort of effect in our lives uh, as Paul uh, hoped and intended they would have for the Roman Christians when he wrote these words. We pray, Father, that uh, the end of this would be that we do uh, know you better, we love you more fully, uh, are more desirous of pursuing you and being more like your son. Uh, And, Father, uh, more convinced of the the grace and provision you've made for us in the Lord Jesus and the fact that you are going to finish this thing that you have started. So, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen those are taking up the morning offering will come forward we'll collect that at this time